about the church. So if you would, follow along with me in Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from this first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you, for you all, with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul sees the church as a community of saints. Notice there in verse 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. They are saints. If you are a member of Faith Presbyterian Church, you are rightly called a saint. Saint means holy one. And it's appropriate on a day that we are going to install and ordain elders and deacons, that the church does not give a higher status to the elders and deacons. He addresses all the saints with the elders and deacons, with the overseers and deacons, just along with them. You new officers, your primary status is that of being a saint. Being an overseer or a a deacon is secondary. It's important, but it is secondary. We are saints. Do you, as you look around, as you think about the other members of Faith Church, do you think of them as saints? Or, which is far more typical, do you have a few people in the congregation that you look at as holy? See, there's only two ways in which you might qualify as holy. One is that you are inherently holy by your own character. God is holy in this sense. Right? He is pure. He is good. He is lovely. 
He is set apart from this fallen world in which we live. He is untarnished by sin, unaffected by the curse. We could also say that Jesus is holy. Right? As he died on the cross, it was not for his own sin that he died. He died for the sins of us. It is also right to call the, the Spirit holy in the uh, Spanish, Espiritu Santo. Santo is saint, holy one. But we are not saints because of the inherent character of our lives. We are holy because of our connection to the Holy One. We are in fellowship with the One who is holy and therefore are rightly called holy. There are not some members of the church who are holy. Every member of the church is a saint through their connection with Jesus Christ. This is the purpose of baptism. You are a cleansed one. You are a holy one. Even the children of believers bear this status in the Bible. Now, while being called a saint in Philippians 1 is a more of a statement of our connection to the Holy One than it is a connection to our own personal character. While that's true, every saint is continually called to a life of holiness. Jesus, or God says, be holy as I am holy. Also, and this is very important, every saint is promised power for holiness. And thirdly, every saint, and this comes to the community of how we look at each other, every saint is joined together with every other saint for the purpose of growing in holiness. Did you hear that? The church is a communion of saints joined to one another, because of our union with our covenant head, Jesus, and we have a communion that is designed to help each other grow in holiness. And it is our connection with one another that is the foundation of everything else that Paul says here in this passage. You don't have to flip over to it, but 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 makes this explicit. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. What that means is we regard no one according to who they actually are in their physical being, in their character, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
We are to regard one another as saints. And that is the foundation for how we treat one another. Our fellowship with one another is grounded in our fellowship with the Holy One. And this is what is the uh, Westminster Confession says in our order of worship. All saints, that's the whole church, are united to Jesus Christ their head by his spirit and by faith and have fellowship with him in his graces, sufferings, death, resurrection, and glory. And being united to one another in love, they have common in each other, in each other's gifts and graces, and are obliged to the performance of such duties, public and private, as do conduce their mutual good, both in the inward and outward man. You see, the church means that I am connected to Nathan, and I am connected to Joanna, and I am connected to Peter. We are joined together, regardless of how I feel about them in the moment. You may not think that you have very much in common with this congregation. The person next to you might irritate you. You might look at them and say, that person's not committed to Jesus. What's their problem? But you are supposed to view that other person through the lens of their connection to Jesus Christ. I don't regard anyone just based upon what I see with my own eyes. I regard them as saints because they are united to Jesus Christ. That's how I regard them. And that is supposed to affect the way I treat them and the way that I feel about them. And I'll show you that from this passage. Verse 5, Paul uses the phrase, your partnership in the gospel. And in verse 7, he uses the phrase, for you are partakers with me of grace. Now, in verse 5 and verse 7, you wouldn't know this because they're two different English words, but in the Greek, they are the same root Greek word. And it is koinonia. I haven't heard that word used a while, but when I was a kid, that was koinonia was all over, right? Koinonia, that was it. Koinonia, koinos means common. And it's koinonia is those who share in common something. And we use the term fellowship with that. But fellowship is not something that we just aspire to in the church. It's not something that we just, oh, we need to be better at fellowship. See, the Apostle John makes this point in 1 John, verse one, chapter 1, verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. There's the proclamation of Jesus Christ, right? We've seen and heard him. We're proclaiming that to you. Why? Why are we proclaiming Jesus? So that you too may have fellowship with us. We're proclaiming to you Jesus so that we could have fellowship? And then he says at the end, And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with his son, Jesus Christ. 
So the fact that we have fellowship with one another is grounded in our fellowship with the Father and the Son. See, Paul is, is theologically driven. He is thinking about the church and that those thoughts about the church theologically drive him to treat the, the members of the church in a particular way. In Philippians 1, verses 3 through 5, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, many commentaries look at the fact that Paul has received financial support from the Philippian church, and they make this passage all about this like formal partnership that he had with them. They're supporting him, and, and he's receiving their support and doing the ministry. And I, I'm not denying that that's a portion of this. Um, but I believe that the financial supporting of Paul is only one small expression of the larger connection that Paul has with them, the fellowship in the gospel. So first five could read, because of your fellowship in the gospel. From the first day that the Philippians received the gospel until the day that Paul was writing this letter, the Philippians enjoyed a fellowship in the gospel. They were participating, they were... Uh, partaking of this gospel message with one another. This is clear to me, I think, because of verse 6. I mean, if you have read Philippians a lot, verse 6 is usually one of those ones that everyone just memorizes, right? I mean, it's just a great, encouraging verse. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. That's a wonderful message or verse to memorize but in the context he's saying you have a fellowship in the gospel and because I, I believe that you have a fellowship in the gospel I believe that the one with whom you have fellowship will finish the work that he's begun in you so how could you describe members of the church we are people who have a fellowship with Christ, and the work of the gospel is working in us. And in that way, we might all be at different places. That gospel work might be doing stuff a little bit different in one person than another person, but I am no different than Art Dunn. I'm no different than Hayes Hall. We have the gospel working in us. That's what makes you a member of the church. That's what unites us. None of us have arrived yet. None of us have got all the way yet. We don't need any more of that work of the gospel because it won't be finished until the day of Christ Jesus. And so sometimes, oh, I'll pick on little Clark Irwin. I might look at little Clark Irwin and I say, man, is grace working in that guy's heart? <laughs> What's going on? But all of us know that the grace of God can sometimes work underneath the surface long before it starts bearing fruit openly for people to see. So there's still hope for you, Clark. <laughs> so I'm supposed to see him as a participant in the grace of God, not just based on what I see in his personal character right this moment, but what I believe God is doing in his life because he is connected to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So then look at verse 7 of Philippians. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, not just some of you, about every one of you. It's right for me to feel this way because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. Now notice again, don't get this backwards. Don't think that Paul has a wonderful, warm relationship with them, and because of that, he's now confident that there will be growth in their lives. It's the exact opposite. It's Paul's connection to the grace of God and believing their connection to the grace of God that makes him believe that God will continue to do this work, and because he knows that they and he are both partakers of grace, he is that knowledge drives his affections and his emotions. <clears throat> Paul, in verses 3 through 5, prays for the members of the Philippian church. Oh, because he's got a close relationship with them? Because he knows each of them by name? No. He prays for them and he gives, as he's praying, he gives thanks. He, it like fills him with thanksgiving and he has joy. Every time he prays for them, he's filled with joy. Now I'm would guess that if you just base your prayers on personal connection, some people you pray for with joy and thanksgiving, others you don't. Right? Or maybe you don't even pray for them at all. Maybe you don't have any concern for them. What's going on in Nathan Graybill's life? I don't know. Don't get along with the guy very well. That's not true, Katie. I do. <laughs> right? No! Nathan is a partaker of the grace of God, just like me. And God is doing a work in him, just like he's doing a work in me. And therefore, I have thankfulness that he is actually in the grace of God. And I have joy because I know that the work that God began in him, he will carry to completion. When we don't like somebody else in the church, why is that? There's only two reasons. Sin in you or sin in them. Immaturity in you or immaturity in them. And our purpose, our focus should not be so much on what is lacking in the other person or in us, as to remember the grace of God that is working, and he is driving us to a place where we will be in conformity with him. And in verse 7, when Paul says it's right for him to feel this way about you all, the first use of feel is not a good translation, my perspective. I'm, I'm not as smart as the ESV translators. But the word there is phreneo, and it means to think. To consider, it is right for me to have this sort of opinion about you. I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace. 
How would you define the church? It is a gathering of people who are partakers of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And because we are all partakers of the same grace, we should think about each other a certain way. He holds them in his heart. Not because he just likes them, not because he gets along with them, not because he hasn't been sinned by them before, but he holds them in his heart because they are fellow partakers of grace. Now it's in verse 8 that feelings get involved. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This word affection, that is coming from the the gut emotions. That is the feelings that he has. Where does Paul get his feelings for the other members of the church? It's not because he has his own personal connection with them. It's because he gets them from the affection of Jesus Christ. Jesus has deep affection for Michael Dunn. He loves him. He shed his blood for him. His powerfully working grace in Michael's heart. So if Jesus is working in me, he should be giving me affection, his affection for Michael Dunn. Understand that it is the theological truth that drives Paul's emotions, his actions, his prayers. That's what's driven by it. As long as you let your feelings of the church be driven by your experience of the church, the church will never be what it's supposed to be. You'll check out, you'll criticize, you'll run away from the church. Paul says that he has a yearning. He says, I yearn for you. Maybe he's just yearning to be with them. I don't think there's anything wrong with thinking that way. He just wants to be with them. But I think that yearning goes much much deeper. It's part of the affection of Christ. If my connection with the LaBelle family is based upon a personal experience of God's grace in my life, then I should want that same grace to be working in their lives. And I yearn for that to happen more and more. I yearn for the work that has begun in them to be carried on to its completion. And so that's exactly what happens in verses 9 through 11. It is my prayer. You want to know what to pray for people? It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You see, Paul yearns for them what Christ is yearning for them. Junior, what is Christ yearning for you? He's yearning for you to experience him. He's yearning for you to to be like him. That's what his yearning is. That's what his work of grace in your heart is. So that should be my driving concern for Junior. This helps us to understand the objective of the church. Why do we exist? Why are we here? So that we can have a nice time in our meetings together? Or is it so that we can become more like Christ? Righteousness only comes through Christ. 
It is our participation in Jesus Christ. It is our fellowship in the grace that he has purchased for us. It is his love and affection that fills us. It is his standard of righteousness that he is producing in us. It is all this work of the gospel in the people of God. That is what the church is. We are the recipients of his grace. We exist to encourage repentance from sin, Faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. If a church doesn't connect people to Jesus Christ, and if a church doesn't yearn for the members of their church to grow up in Christ, it no longer is a church. So here's the conclusion. Just sum this up. The church is a community of saints. Every baptized member of this church is a saint. We are a community of saints. Our sainthood is not our own inherent righteousness. Our sainthood comes through our fellowship with Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with Jesus Christ brings us into communion with one another And we are all beggars helping one another partake of the grace earned for us by Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. And as we partake of this grace together, we yearn for one another to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I want Jesus to live in each one of your hearts. And you should want that for every other member of the church. So you might say it this way. The church is a community of saints being driven by grace to become saints in life and practice. All to the praise and glory of God. Do you love the church? Do you see the members of the church the way Christ sees them? You see, we're going to ordain and install elders and deacons. And their job will be to oversee and to serve the saints. But if you don't have a proper view of who you are, then you won't have a proper view of who they are. They're not the holy ones in the church. We are partakers of grace. And may we love the church and pray for those in the church with thanksgiving and joy, knowing that the work of grace will not finish, will not uh, stop until the work is completed. Amen.